Greetings, rabble rousers. My name is Jessa McLean. Welcome to Blueprints for Disruption, a weekly discussion dedicated to amplifying activism across Turtle Island. Together, we will examine tactics, explore motivations, and celebrate successes in disrupting the status quo. This podcast is a proud part of New Left Media. Welcome to the very first episode of Blueprints of Disruption. I'm so excited to kick this discussion off, not just because it's our first episode, but because I think we found the perfect starting point for a larger discussion on activism in Canada. When I first announced that I would be recording a podcast, I had quite a few people reach out, and one that stood out in particular reminded me that you know if I was going to provide tools to Um, activists across Canada, if we were going to encourage people to do direct action and to disrupt the status quo, then it was important that we start by teaching people how to keep themselves safe, teaching people how to keep their community safe and their movements safe. And so our first guest is Noodle, a community activist and a expert in operational security. OPSEC, we'll refer to it uh, throughout the interview. When I first set up the interview with Noodle, uh, my first intentions were to provide a 101 for activists, basic tools um, that they could immediately take into the field, particularly organizers. And um, But what we ended up with was so much more than that. Uh, we gained insight into why security within movements is important. Uh, we learned the limitations on the tools that Noodle will provide. Um, why it's important to strike a balance between accessibility and security. Mostly, though, we'll learn how trust is built and uh, what folks really mean when they say, we keep us safe. Without any further hesitation, here's the interview with Noodle. So welcome to Blueprints of Disruption. Today, we are going to be talking a lot about OPSEC and InfoSec, and maybe you don't even know what that means right now, but by the end of this conversation, I'm sure you will. Today, we have with us Noodle, a community activist. Uh, Noodle, can you introduce yourself to those who maybe have not met you? Yes, hello, and I would hope that a lot of people wouldn't recognize or have met me, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah, I go by Noodle. Um, I'm a, uh, I guess... I guess local community activist and slash organizer. Um, I'm part of, you know, a few groups in the, uh, I guess, uh, area known as Canada. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for a number of years. Uh, you know, I've always had kind of uh, um, political leaning tendencies, but uh, was radicalized, you know, some years back uh, as I got older and realized that uh, a lot of things weren't necessarily as I was told. <laughs> You were, you were radicalized at a young age, so to speak. I mean, I would say that I was probably the early beginnings of my radicalization probably came from music that I listened to, that I didn't really quite grasp the content of the lyrics. Uh, but there were seeds that were planted that made, um, you know, a lot more sense when I was older <laughs> and I was able to put two and two together. I'm like, I understand. <laughs> so... Any tune in particular you comes top to mind? Uh, I would say a lot of the music that I listened to was labeled as, uh, I guess, air quotes, counterculture, um, whether it's like the punk rock scene or the hip hop scene. Um, you know, there were just words to me when I was a lot younger that I would sing along with and I'd be like, yeah, okay, that's cool. And then, you know, those lyrics and 
ideologies, you know, kind of melded together when I was older and I had a little bit more grasp of things. But yeah, nothing in, in one thing in particular, but genres, you know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So. so you became politically aware, but what made you focus, not that all 100% of your focus is on this, but what made you really hone in on OPSEC and keeping activists safe? I mean, why do you go by noodle? Well, that's a good question. Um, a question that I do have answers for. <laughs> um, my my first experiences into with on the ground activism uh, locally here, you know, there was couple of demonstrations and things that were happening, um, you know, in the place that I was at, uh, including a really large one about 10 years ago, um, where, you know, there was a mass police, massive police action and where hundreds of people were kettled and arrested, um, despite just not having actually done anything and had their lives, you know, disrupted and potentially, you know, sidetracked entirely for years as a result of, you know, court proceedings and that kind of thing. And I, I guess I couldn't make any sense of why um, that would happen when people aren't doing anything wrong. And then I looked into more historical precedents of entire movements being shut down uh, due to, you know, these kinds of things being infiltrated or just completely disrupted by bad faith actors. Um and also just having seen people physically harmed and doxxed um, when using, you know, their outright, I guess, identities without any uh, concern for security or safety of the people around them and themselves. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, I think activism and security, maybe I should rephrase this. Uh, I think it's a really good question because activism and uh, security should actually go hand in hand so it shouldn't be one or the other um they it shouldn't be um separate from each other uh you know if you're doing activism the idea is that you're changing you're you're attempting to work towards a change in the status quo uh as we know uh the ones in power have no interest in that that's what that's the whole idea of activism right we need to be advocates for something against the greater, I guess we can use words like state or, you know, ruling class or, you know, the reality is the ones in power that make all the decisions for us, despite calling us a democracy. And and now it's not just the state, right? We have open fascists um, brazenly taken to the streets. I imagine security becomes a concern on that front, too. But here we're talking spe more specifically protecting ourselves from the police. Now, I've been to large demonstrations that had, had similar outcomes, and I think I remained naive to the extent of um, what we needed to be doing. So, I mean, why do we have to protect ourselves against the police? A lot of people would ask us, right? Like, uh, we're just organizing marches, perhaps shouting outside of MPP's offices, not doing anything, quote unquote, illegal. That's a really common kind of common. That's that's a good question and a good way to phrase it. And it's really good food for thought. But um, so I would kind of respond with the whole kind of incorrect trope of like, if you've done nothing wrong, then you've got nothing to be afraid of line that uh, people will often use to make apologies for police violence and state violence 
and just in in general, right? The whole overarching idea that, oh, you know, it's okay. Like, talk to police and give them all the information because you've done nothing wrong, so you won't, you know, be harmed or convicted or arrested or anything. We know that that's not true. I mean, you know, anybody that has uh, an open mind or has been paying attention to uh, police violence all across the world, specific, but also very specifically to, you know, Western... Um, you know, policing in North America, I should say, uh, where it's an actual war. Uh, I mean, like, why, why would you need to, why would you want to give them any more information, uh, that they can use against you and will use against you, uh, regardless of whether or not you've done anything wrong, they just might not like the look of you. And at the end of the day, you're, you, you've mentioned picketing outside MPP offices or a protest. Those protests are aimed directly at challenging the status quo and the power. Um, I mean, your opponents are the ones that are that the police literally work for. Um, so, I mean, why would we need to defend ourselves from increased police activity? Is that's a that's something that I guess it would depend on where you fall politically in your ideology. Like, do you trust the police in the first place, or do you have a mistrust of police violence and misuse of powers? That kind of brings me to a point that we were going to talk about later, but it seems like natural now. So it's not everybody's experience that they need to take certain precautions. Um, it seemed if you were in Ottawa or, you know, um, on the Capitol Hill, January 6th, uh, they seemed untouchable. No concern for, you know, protecting their personal identities. Um, I've heard you speak, uh, you know, black block tactics, no- nothing. Um in fact, they were live streaming as they did a, a lot of them. So uh, I think that goes to your point as, as to the to the systems that we're challenging. But I mean, what were you thinking as you see this unfold? You, you know, you give everyone warnings on what to do and how to be safe. And then, you know, um, you watch this with impunity. I guess that speaks to the wider issue of the right wing has always uh, had uh, power on their side in terms of political power. and police action, uh, laws, mandates, they're the ones that write the laws. So they've had a false sense of security, or sorry, I I shouldn't say false. They have had a real sense of uh, security in terms of right-wing players have generally never needed to or wanted to disguise themselves. I mean, this goes back many, many years and decades. Uh, But let's just take Charlottesville, for example. You know, you have many of the outright neo-Nazis feeling that they don't need to cover their identities. And the truth is that they didn't for a long time because, I mean, they're on the same side as the ones who enforce capital and to use that big buzzword that is often misused. But fascism, Uh, fascism is is an actual political ideology. It's not just things that you don't like or somebody telling you to clean your room. Um, But, you know the side even if it feels that way even if it feels that way absolutely and it's valid i get it and i understand language evolves and changes. but fascism is this very specific um, political ideology that's bent on you know (laughs) capitalism (laughs) as the primary source of uh, oppression and exploitation um but um so a lot of those people in the like you mentioned in the convoy or january 6 don't feel that they need to hide um but you know, the state has done what they have needed to in a very minimal 
amount of things, like as you would use the term kid gloves, you know, they've laid light charges on people, uh, and very few as, as scapegoats. So there really hasn't been any mass implications for the right wing to go underground at this point. Uh, but I mean, there's decades of historical precedent where leftists have been targeted for having their identities known by the police, by the state, by employers, by individuals. Um, you know, a lot of us have been personally doxxed by very violent individuals, uh, state or not state. Um, and it kind of teaches you real quick that, you know, you should take some basic safety precautions because a lot of us have people in our lives that we don't want to see hurt um, in any way, shape or form. Uh, whereas the right wing thinks, or sorry, knows that they are on the side of capital, essentially, which is the winning side. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't say the winning side, the power side. So there's a there's a huge imbalance there. Definitely. I mean, it was enraging as an organizer to watch um, because it's like I gave you this example when we spoke before, but I organized a, a simple, a series of rotating protests outside of MPP's offices uh, back a few years ago for the fight for 15 and fairness. And every time I would be in my vehicle driving to the location, or perhaps a few hours before I would get a call from a police officer identifying himself as a community liaison officer, uh, he would just let it be known that he knew where I was going, he knew who was going to be there, um, would review all of the bylaws and laws that I should be aware of, despite, you know, being on the phone with me the week before. And although that did clue me into, you know, my number was not on any of the places, you know, I know that the the police, they have resources, but still I thought like, I'm not doing anything illegal. I don't care if they know who I am, but you know, I didn't take into consideration the social mapping, the, the, you know, danger I could be putting my comrades in. I also did not anticipate ever being charged for the outcome of, you know, any property damage. Uh, oh my we're God, seeing that not as property a, damage. No, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, worst case scenario is, is a broken window at Starbucks. We know this, but it, you know, those things never crossed my mind. They do now, obviously, because we're seeing a lot of Black Lives Matter protesters, especially in the United States, facing felony charges, Absolutely. right? For, for doing kind of, what seems like an innocuous needed protest um, things that we do quite often um, and with such serious repercussions. Um, I don't know if you know any specific examples you want to share or um, can kind of speak to that, how the need has become perhaps more obvious to folks that we're not just protecting, you know, um, ourselves as organizers, uh, but also the communities. It's like one of those things like this. This is such uh, I, I'd like to kind of go back to to basics a little bit. Right. So I guess like one of the things that when we talk about security culture, a lot of times, uh, especially people newer to this, uh, we'll kind of brush it off and be like, listen, like 
we're not like again like you mentioned uh with your very specific examples that are really helpful like we're not doing anything illegal like you know like we have the leader of you know the liberal party and also the prime minister going on tv every single time there's like a, a protest that makes the news that says you have a right to protest and that's the cornerstone of democracy <laughs> but um but you have to do it peacefully and within the law I mean, you, you hear something like that and be like, yeah, okay, I can go organize, you know, uh, a left leaning or whatever, you know, um, protest outside an MPP because the prime minister says so. But I mean, like, protest has never worked if it falls specifically in the guidelines of what the people you're protesting allow you, uh, how they allow you to protest. Right. So if anything that challenges their power, they are going to take a look at it and they are not going to like it. They don't. The government has no has no interest in peaceful protest or protest of any kind. The, the misnomer of peaceful protest is it's 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 false. <laughs> when you say that, when you say the peaceful protest is false, you mean in the eyes of the state, essentially, or just the very act of disruption is is violence. Yeah, and it also like puts people on the side of this protest is only legit because we deem it as peaceful. This protest is not legitimate because a window was broken or that somebody punched a fascist in the face. <laughs> right? Like it's it's like so my protest is only valid and legitimate if it's deemed peaceful as in it falls within the guidelines and the law of what the power that I'm protesting allows, like it's it's a very much of a misnomer and uh, very much weaponized language that media will use, right? Oh, this is a peaceful protest, right? Whereas, since that completely delegitimizes any other protest that is deemed not peaceful by the state, and as soon as they deem it not peaceful, out comes the tear gas and the horse. Sorry, that's another subject. That's, that's another subject itself. But it, it does go hand in hand with activism and the need for security, because in the eyes of the state, any left protest or any protest that is going against their um, their 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 power or their narrative is not going to be considered peaceful in their eyes anyway. It's almost like if you're not if you haven't grasped their attention, you're likely not doing it right. I mean, in a sense, in a sense, yes, absolutely. Like they're not concerned with with A to B marches so much anymore. Um, you know, they're they're worried about property damage. They're worried about what they call rioting, right? That an A to B march is very kind of like essential, and it's good for solidarity and community building and making noise. Um, but you know, uh, an A to B march that's deemed peaceful, which I mean, we've seen, uh, by the weekly, uh, air quotes, freedom fighters for the anti-mandate and anti-vax folk, how they're freely allowed to march every single week in, uh, you know, in large masses through downtown core without any sort of police disruption. I mean, like... Or permits. Or permits. <laughs> and that really doesn't really accomplish anything either, whether it's the left or the right at the end of the day. But those marches combined with political action are power, right? And they're they're scared of that. Yeah, I was going to say, like, although, like, they don't accomplish anything in terms of disruption or, you know, perhaps getting the response from the state, it does, you know, help to build movements in a way right absolutely it's like it's it's essential right a show of solidarity in the streets is is very powerful but it can also be very demoralizing when you know 
20 people show up to something. <laughs> instead of so you just hope yeah. hope for the best sometimes and yeah mm-hmm. and it's interesting how much resources the police um and right wing will um i guess allocate to shutting even those down uh it's it's actually really really amazing um like just like really so again it goes to the need for why do we make their jobs easier when we can take a few security tips um, you know, security practices that we can incorporate into our workflow uh, just to make their lives a little bit more difficult um, without really making your life any harder. So I guess that's let's kind talk of the about crux that. Of that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Like, so um, I'm a, we call it like a small time organizer, I suppose. Uh, so as we all are, some- <laughs> you know, <laughs> Until we get together and do big things, right? Absolutely. Many parts make one big. What What are some of the basic things, the most accessible things that you would tell people to just start doing besides being aware of their presence online, right? I think that's step one. First, kind of acknowledging all the places you are, your photo, your name, your friends lists, what you like and don't like. But I think people are becoming more hyper aware. What, what do we do now? I mean, I th- okay, so there's there's a terminology that, you know, sounds like super, like, militaristic, blah, blah, blah. But uh, terminology of uh, threat modeling, right? So maybe if, uh, a good place to start is, A, um, you know, if you're an activist, like, what are you what are you concerned about, first and foremost? Like, what do you do and what threat are you worried about? Are you worried about um, state surveillance? Are you worried about... Um, somebody you're arguing with online, not having access to all of your personal information, like where you live and where you work, etc. Or are you um, interested in building a bigger movement that's going to challenge state power and you don't want to be disrupted and shut down um, internally uh, before that even gets off the ground? So there's like, those are like kind of three different small examples yes (laughs) (laughs) yes like do we and like the thing is like do we want to make it easier uh for for people um and then this also brings up the thing where a lot of people especially who are newer to organizing who have never experienced um you know bad shit happening to them is um i'm not afraid Uh, i'm not scared let them come i have nothing to hide well to that i say you should be afraid (laughs) because it doesn't matter what reality is because politicians like power structures lie to maintain power it doesn't really matter Um, if you think you have anything to hide or not it can be used information will be used against you Uh, we see this with disinformation and misinformation and improperly corrected uh, reported stories where they choose specific language to reframe everything or they'll take some of the content that you have on your personal pages or old pictures and take it completely out of context. And now, even though you haven't actually done what they're saying in the world's eyes, you, you have. <laughs> so. Wait, noodle, mm-hmm. noodle. You're not implying the police would fabricate <laughs> evidence from the trove of stuff that you've put online. <laughs> they don't. They don't do that for small time fish like me, do they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they would absolutely never lie in court or fabricate evidence, even for something as benign as a speeding ticket. <laughs> yeah, no, I've never known anyone to personally experience that for a two hundred dollar fine. I can only imagine. 
in if, if, if larger things are on the line, but so what do I do with my Facebook account then noodle? Like I am everywhere. And a lot of people are right. We've really exposed ourselves. Um, how do we still remain visible so people can find us and we can build those networks you're talking about to overthrow capitalism, but also at the same time, make sure that the more subversive work that needs to be done isn't thwarted or infiltrated or stymied in any way. Oh, there's, um, that's, that's a really good question. And I guess for like a lot of people, they have that question, right? Like I, I want to be part of the, you know, part of the movement. I would like to be vocal. I have, you know, I would like to contribute to the community, um, you know, and then you have a lot of other people who are not so much, you know, that's not really their priority. They just want to do work on the ground. They want to do work and do their part. And they're not really concerned with so much, um, needing, uh, you know, more of an open facing kind of online presence. So I guess I would break it down in two different ways. If you need an online kind of like open kind of profile where people know who you are and you want to, um, kind of bring more of the mainstream into the fold and just kind of start working in that world, then yeah, that's, that's fantastic. There are still a lot of security things that you can do with, you know, just not having anybody else's information uh, that's in your life on your on your Facebook, or um, you know we can talk about compartmentalization, where you would leave any sort of um, spicy kind of activism and organizing off of your main public profile facing. Any of your spicier hot takes um, would be relegated to more of an anonymous kind of type profile. Um, but there's, I guess it would it, it's really different for a lot of people, but the main takeaway is not to make their jobs any easier. Um, we already know that there's a real problem with data and privacy on all the social media apps, including Facebook, especially Facebook, <laughs> which we know has been, they roll over immediately for law enforcement. So, um, you know, your entire life, online life can be dissected with one subpoena request to Facebook and they'll just hand it all over. You can download your own information from Facebook and see how that can be misused if you want to uh, take a look. No, on a side note, the NDP makes you do that if you want to be a candidate, including your private group chats. Um, you need to submit that to HQ. So, um that's Talk about keeping fucky. your circles safe. <laughs> that is... It's garbage. Um, is. I won't do it. I won't submit myself to that anymore. But if you want to be a candidate, you have to do that, which means, you know, when we're unsafe like that and we behave in ways like that, it, it endangers all the people around us, right? You might be like, oh, I've got nothing to hide, but you have no idea what your comrades... Absolutely. ...what their circumstances might be or what you're exposing them to. Um, Absolutely. And, you know... So let's take for example, like you post a spicy meme with a spicy con with a spicy caption. You know that's your take for the day. Um, let's see, right? Like it's public; it gets shared, you know, a couple thousand times. Somebody that sees it doesn't really like you um, for whatever reason, or doesn't like the content because you know it, it hits them. <laughs> it hits them right where you know it was meant to hit them <laughs> for whatever reason, right? Um, you know, the, all they got to do is click on your page now. Um, and if you have information about, you know, let's say your partners, like heaven forbid your children, um, you know, why, why are we exposing them to that, that kind of vitriol? Like we we're, we're so fired up that we feel the need to make a post like this with, you know, some, 
with content or, or, you know, um, or words that you've written or sentiments that you have that you know are going to upset the right wing. Um, why are we opening ourselves up to be targeted uh, in personal lives, whether it's employment or the people around you? That's the main thing. Like, there's a whole, there's a real problem with clout. What you know, we, we clout chasing <laughs> in all circles, right? Like, that's another thing that we should we should at some point touch on. Whether it's are you clout chasing or are you doing activism? <laughs> there's overlap for sure, but <laughs> there's you know. And that results in kind of like a bit of overexposure. Is that what Overexposure without any kind of like, you know, uh, concern for safety for the people around you. Um, I don't want to have my partner or partners or, you know, people in my family, um, you know, approached at their workplaces or um, even socially, you know, uh, because, you know, it's clear that due to social, very easy social mapping if my shit's all public. I don't want them questioned over my political, my politics. I don't want them questioned over my beliefs, <laughs> you know, or heaven forbid, hurt <laughs> or targeted. Yeah, I think like anybody who doubts that that's a possibility has clearly not been doxxed before or had a friend doxxed for their political views. Absolutely. Like, and like, and I think like one of the daunting things about like, you know, and I, and I believe that you've tried to steer that you've steered the conversation towards like, what can we do as opposed to just talking about like these concepts at a higher level is, is that one of the things that I would do uh, on my personal, I would at least look at my privacy settings immediately. <laughs> like uh, I, I use Facebook uh, as an example a lot because they make it kind of a little bit, the, the, they don't tell you what your privacy settings are. So it's just kind of a good practice to see like, is my friends list public? That's like one of the main things that you should never have public in my opinion, because what's the point of it? Like there's really no point beyond like, Oh, do I have any mutual friends with this person? Well, you know, that's kind of, okay, cool. You can see that, but like, does it really change whether or not you're going to be friends with this person on, on Facebook, for example? Right. I don't want people to see everybody who I'm friends with because that's just entirely thrown my entire community under the bus, whether they're even activists or not. That's like one of the main things. <laughs> and make your profile not searchable from Google, because that's I mean, if anybody wants to Google your name or any search engine, your name, if it's not visible to you're, you're giving them so much information and, and power just by saying, yes, please index my entire social media profile on the the search engine please like why would like there's no need for that so that's like one thing what about photos you know it's hard to have a facebook photo i mean you could put an anonymous photo up there but i mean are folks that are already out there and likely flagged you know people again will use me as an example because there's a lot of people like me where our political views are known Mm-hmm. and our faces and our names um so would these steps help us at this point they would help Are we your still community making, they help our community and that's the yeah, point right it would help your community and that's what it's all about right like if you're already out there and you're already targeted i mean again the same applies like why are we making it easier for them regardless of what information they do have why are we giving them more information so for somebody who's out like that and you have a presence and a platform, I guess that's what the difference is. Do you have a platform or do you not have a platform? What are you using the platform for? 
So I think it's it's generally two very different measures that are under the same security umbrella for like, do you are is your goal to grow your platform in the movement? So I shouldn't say your platform, but are you is your goal to use your platform to grow a movement? Or is your um, kind of online activity more of an individualistic kind of profile? So that's and where I that'll vary for everybody, right? That'll like, vary for everybody, right? So some people's platform could be their own personal page that they make public posts. Um, and I would assume that most of those people that are doing those kind of posts will, you know, will have some kind of experience or I would hope that they would have some experience and understand that they're not going to throw their community under the bus. So they are not going to talk ever about somebody else's actions, um, that they'll speak for themselves. Um, and you know, at the same time, keeping their communities, um, safe by not giving out any information on their communities or saying so-and-so did this and it was awesome, that kind of thing. Um, so differentiate between um, whether or not you're using a platform to grow a movement or if you're just um, a, a single person that's politically active. What about any other tools outside of Facebook? What Are there tools or apps that activists should definitely be using over other more commonly used like Google Docs is our favorite? Get off Google Docs entirely. Yeah, entirely get off. There are alternatives uh, to Google Docs where you can have like shared, um, you know, real live, um, real time updating on like a, a notepad that everybody's working on or a Word document or, you know, that kind of stuff. Any of that. There are, there are alternatives out there. Um, Rise Up has a very basic kind of uh, pad that's secure end to end encryption. Uh, they also have secure email run by activists and anarchists. Like to, it's all complete anonymous and end-to-end -end encryption. Um, and there are more and more kind of like shared services um, that are not Google. Uh, Google is bad because again, they're like Facebook. They will literally, at the drop of a hat, divulge all information. Stop using Gmail for activism. <laughs> um, again, all Google products are going to be. Um, highly surveilled at the drop of the dime. They, they just give it up. They don't have any interest in not giving it up. <laughs> so in fact, they have a vested interest absolutely. in giving it up, right? This is capital with a, with a capital C. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So I have a lot of work to do noodle. Um, it's okay. I have a lot not of been do. secure. And, and it can, and it can sound kind of daunting. And at first it is right. So I think one thing that we have to keep in mind that these are small, like, yeah, I mentioned briefly when we we're talking about like, there's, for example, let's take two factor authentication. You know, a few years ago, a lot of people didn't want to have to deal with that because it just, you know, takes them a little bit more time and brain power, which is true. It's valid. At the same time, it's like now it's kind of accepted that we would use two factor authentication and how culture and society learned and incorporated that into their normal kind of air quotes workflow is the amount of scams. <laughs> and fraud that was happening <clears throat> and people getting locked out of their accounts because somebody else is, I mean, and that causes people to adjust their behavior. So let's bring that into a more of a security thing. Once you've had experience of being on the receiving end of having poor security and having that weaponized against you, you adjust your methods, right? So my thing is let's not wait for that. <laughs> if it hasn't happened to you is that there are small things that we can do. We can start with, you know, I, I talk about a lot of concepts, but I'll just briefly mention uh, some of the things you can get. get a secure email. 
you can have a rise up email for free as well, or a proton mail, uh, which is fully end to end encrypted. Um, those are like, that's like the main thing. Just get yourself an encrypted email. Just even when you sign up for newsletters or that kind of stuff, like why are we giving Google who is in my opinion, just as bad as the state, uh, more information. Why are we signing up for everything in our lives with Google products? Um, and linking all of our social accounts. Like, that's just bad. <laughs> it's bad practice. Um, and we can get out of it. To one another, you mean, you know, our our, late, our Twitter is linked to our Instagram, which gives out our email address. And, okay. Absolutely. So you can get, like, so, okay. So here here's the thing. Like, as leftists, I'm sure that a lot of people have seen, like, play-by-play entire doxes on bad players on the right wing as in you know you go onto a twitter thread or something like that and we have you know the names of all their associates we know what they did in you know going back to high school (laughs) and that kind of shit where they work where they live you know things that they've said you can just apply that same methodology to people using that on the left I mean, I know how much information I can get with somebody that has a public-facing profile or somebody that doesn't take security as a concern. And I have added a lot of information that was not necessarily known just from having somebody who's super violent at a protest and we we take a photo. We're like, who is this? We need information. And lo and behold, a day later, using your network of people just doing stuff that anybody can do without any sort of like expertise, air quotes, like they've made it easy and the same can be done for the left and has been done and is getting done. So just kind of use that as a frame of reference for why do I need security? I don't know. You might say something that a Zionist might not like online. And then all of a sudden that person happens to be in with a bunch of far right players who are violent and they go to your profile and they give all that information to them. This is where we have lists and it's bad. (laughs) that i imagine noodle that when you go into spaces knowing what you know mm-hmm. um are you then relieved because when i think of all of the security precautions i have concerns about accessibility right anytime Absolutely. we try to introduce totally even a new a new platform a new app we lose a few folks sometimes resistance to 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 diving into new technology so um but it 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 must also give a sense of security to the group, knowing that at least some precautions are being taken, that Noodle, you could come into a space that I've created and know that you didn't have to expose yourself or that, you know, the communications you had with me would be encrypted. So absolutely. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I guess not, not, and not everyone's going to be convinced that they need to, to take these steps. So what do you do when, you know, not everyone, you know, you're communicating obviously on your end is encrypted and, and, but you have to send it to their Gmail and that's a very valid, that's super valid. And we, it, it, it's, it's, it's an issue, um, for, for both reasons, accessibility issues and also security issues, right? They're, they're kind of, okay. So let's use, that was a really good example of like, let's say we've introduced a new app, you know, we're trying to get everybody in our circles on board with it, but there's somebody, um, you know, who uh, doesn't have access to the same level of technology or the lit- or the digital literacy required to for security. 
Um, I think it's beholden upon the community to make sure that everybody um, can access to it um, and be trained and be basically prepped on why we're doing this. And it's not about alienation and it's not about elitism. It's about community care. So reframing this whole, why am I doing all this just to do this? Be like, okay, well, why do you do any community care? Um, and the accessibility issue that you have, let's say, for example, uh, I'm going to use an example of like, let's say something like a Marshall group chat for an upcoming demo. Okay, this is uh, an example that's kind of easy, um, really easy to relate to. Let's just say there's an open call for marshals uh, for an upcoming uh, rally or protest that you know you're interested in attending. You've never done uh, anything like that before, but you're interested. You want to do it. You want to do your part. Um, and somebody asks you to, um, you know, kind of download Signal. Uh, to get on this and you're like, well, well, why do I need to, to, to use an app just to, just to be part of this? In my opinion, it's our job to kind of like steer and explain that it's not about personal security. Even when they say that it's, you know, well, I'm not scared. I, I'm, I'm angry. I want to participate. We just reframe as security culture is community care because we don't want to see any of us get locked up or targeted um, and we will help you with this. Uh, and we try to introduce like technology roles, like none of us used smartphones before smartphones came out, you know, none of us used cloud services before cloud services came out. So it's just another learning curve and, and introduced to your workflow. Like we understand how to install and download apps for the most part, right? Especially if the person that's saying that they don't want to download a new app when they already use all the different socials, we can say, okay, well, you know, Honestly, like our priority when we do community organizing is the community. So please just like leave that attitude at the door. And there's a reason why we're doing this. And it's not because we want to gatekeep or alienate. It's because we actually care. We actually care about the safety of our people. And we don't want to have to be, you know, targeted because nobody's taking care of security. Or when there's any sort of light kind of vetting, like, Oh, like who is this person that now wants to do activism that might be deemed illegal by the state? You know, like we want to keep each other safe. It's it's kind of like that, and it doesn't have to be alienating. It shouldn't be alienating. It's, I should rephrase that. It should never be alienating. I think that's so important to deliberately go out of your way to frame it as community care, as it is, but because it's not overtly such, right? These are kind of personal security adjustments that we usually see as keeping our privacy safe. Privacy is very <laughs> individualistic. So um, allowing the community to understand that because as leftists, we are out there because we care about our community. So there's, you know, if they're rejecting that kind of basis for doing what we need them to do, then that's a red flag in itself, right? Because you mentioned a, a marshal, a marshal chat. Well, usually you have to train marshals too for the first time, right? So if we can train them to marshal, we can train them to use signal if needed. Or, I mean, yeah, that's, I, I think like sometimes when we talk about these security measures, um, we, we, we forget that part, you know, that it's not just for us and, and that we need to explain it that way. Um, even though it's a it's a list of things for you to do, you're doing that um, for the people around you. 
And as we become more hyper aware of like how, how much we expose our friends, I think it, then it becomes obvious. So you talked about marshals. Let's, let's talk about on the street a little bit. Um, eventually we'll all end up there. Am I right? So, um, how do we keep each other safe when we are at, we're at demonstrations, not just, um, you know, uh, to prevent against tear gas or, or things like that. I'm not, no martial training needed, but, uh, for post event, you know, what do we do so that we don't get in trouble after, regardless if we did something wrong? Cause we know that that's not always the case. Are we, are we, are we approaching this from a sense of like as an organizer or as a participant? Well, I guess from an organizer, because it's our job to make sure participants know these things. You can't just ask people to come out to a march without providing them any kind of safety guidelines. So let's approach it from what an organizer must make sure folks know. Um, you, you know, the buddy system would be an example, right? If you want to talk about that, um, most people imagine that's just for children or when we get go out drinking or, you know, whatnot. We used to have it at raves when we go and, uh, but I, I have not employed it on the streets. And I heard you talk about that. And, you know, I, I underlined it here because as an organizer, I felt really irresponsible for never implementing something like that. I won't make that mistake again, but what are other things that, you know, we should be saying to folks before they show up so that they are equipped and, you know, can protect themselves as best as possible. Good question. I, uh, I I do believe that it's an organizer's responsibility to put that kind of messaging out there. So yeah, it's a great question. <clears throat> Some of the things that an organizer can do pre and post, in my opinion, is A, just to never make sure it's something as simple as not making your guest list public. A lot of people don't. More and more people are doing that now, thankfully. But in the past, if you have your guest list public... I mean, all it takes is for one person to click on there and, you know, take screenshots of all the names for potential use later. So that's like step number one. Um, Step number two is to, well, okay, I should preface this with that. Like every org has different needs. Um, This is, this is for my personal take on uh, a local, a local organized event as an organizer. So um, you know, just to make sure that safety is kept in mind and that goes beyond, you know, the whole tear gas thing and police violence thing, as in maybe don't, if you're going to be very local and uh, very vocal and seen at a protest, i.e., you know, carrying spicy signs or yelling and heckling and that kind of thing and engaging, um, maybe try not to use your, your real name <laughs> and have your face shown <laughs> just for... You know, anybody can snap a pic and they have your name. And then that begins their easy search if you have a public profile and your entire social network is mapped. Just to say, and if you're posting pictures online, just don't have people's faces in it. Is that for all the clout chasers? (laughs) That's for all the clout chasers. And it's just people that are also just not mindful of it, right? Let's just say you go to a protest that, you know, ends up with a police action in terms of police violence and you've been live streaming all day not mindful of people's faces that just happen to be there um you know in solidarity with the rally that had no intention of you know 
being doxxed. <laughs> they're part of your community, right? If you're live streaming and you're, their faces are front and center, you're getting their names and that kind of stuff, um, those people can be very easily targeted too. So just be mindful of the images that you post, the words that go with it, like being like, oh yeah, like, um, you know, I was there and this happened. <laughs> you know, like don't throw anybody under the bus or don't make it easier for them. Um, always keep community safety in mind and push that as in we keep each, each other safe. Uh, that kind of messaging kind of, a lot of people will, will, will look at an event posting and just be like, yes, I need to go to this, but then have zero concern for safety for themselves or others. Uh, yeah, especially newcomers or folks that, you know, we're, we're not asking anything illegal of them, right? So Absolutely not. Um, it would be completely normal for them to think that they could just show up in their favorite uh, sloganed t-shirts and Ugh. with their, their baby strapped to their back and yeah, ready to totally. Like outside of like, you know, doing black block or what have you, um, which is, you know, for those that aren't in the know, just like in the practice of wearing all black, no logos showing, covering the face and just looking as one unit, an anonymous unit. Um, you know, short of that, just, you know, don't wear identifying features. Don't have your tattoos showing. Uh, tattoos will be one of the main identifiers. Um, you know, and people, again, I'm already hearing the voice. So I have, well, I'm not scared. I'm not scared. I just, if anything, if anybody who's listening to this, like having a hard time following, if anything, your takeaway is, listen, it's not just about you and your own personal fear. It's again, community, community, community. Right. So if any, you know, as an organizer, that should be stressed. <laughs> like that's, that's just my whole thing. A lot of organizers don't. <laughs> and it's empowering to provide these tools and to teach pe people to it keep them safe, right. Is. And to, and to keep each other safe. Um, Cause most of the spaces that we create are hell bent on recreating our ideal community, right? If we think back to Occupy, if anyone was there, I mean, that's what that was all about in that park too, was recreating a space that was ideal to us. And um, for sure, there was police infiltration um, during that action that was very detrimental, uh, in my opinion. Um, so I totally understand, uh, although it took a conversation with you, to be honest, to really have me second guess a lot of the approaches that I've been using or lack of security approaches that I've been using because I was fearless for myself. And I don't think I thought I was enough trouble. I don't think I'm enough trouble for anybody, but you know, why wait to that point before you start implementing just some basic new habits, right? Yeah. Just some new habits in your, like, again, it's not changing the entire way that you live your life. Like nobody's saying, don't use email, don't use social media. I mean, that would be ideal, but then, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> we're not there. Right. So, so the idea is, is that, you know, social media is a powerful tool one way or another. Right. And we know this, like we, we know it can be used for, you know, the proverbial binary good and evil. And we know this. So, I mean, we take we just have to take precautions um, and just don't make it easier. Just repeat that in your head. Don't make it easier for the opposition. Don't make it, you know, of course, we can't be 100 percent secure in everything we do. And also there really is 
truth to the matter that over, uh, I guess, like, security culture for the sake of security culture can be alienated. Uh, I'm not saying that that, that doesn't happen. Um, you know, like, there are people that uh, will sometimes get too carried away with people um, not doing security culture as opposed to, you know, trying to encourage it and teach um, the importance and necessity and demonstration of love and care for your community through trying to teach security culture. So we don't want to go overboard either. Like the last thing I want to do is have somebody who's really like new to activism or newer to um, community activism, I should say, um, you know, completely being turned off by, um, you know, coming into a space and not practicing good security culture and then having everybody jump down their throats without explaining and, you know, and, and showing community care and love. It's one thing to say security culture is, is care and love, and it's another thing to completely do the opposite of it, <laughs> of, of demonstrating that care and love. So. Because, you know, yeah, in order to grow, we constantly have to invite strangers into Absolutely. our spaces. Absolutely. And there has to be a level of trust. So, you know, it was really eye-opening to, like, have these conversations with you because then I understand that's part of building the community as well is, you know, making sure that they are safe and that they know they're entering in a safe space, but you know, that that you'll also walk them through it. Um, I do, I want to use you as an example, if you don't mind, because you do say, you know, you don't have to go through um, a loss of, you know, identity, but we call you noodle do you feel like you've lost a sense of identity and the level of security that you, you have taken? And no, I uh, in other, you know, to be honest, I, I, uh, I mean, the, the noodle and is not a separate entity to to who I am, right? It's just a different part of myself that I've been able to compartmentalize, right? So. So I, I use Noodle as an alias, and, and I think that, first of all, we can get named by our communities or give ourselves names. And who the fuck doesn't want to do that? <laughs> right? Like, we have a whole... Anyway, so um, to, um, to speak to that, I don't feel like I've lost any of my identity because, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, I guess depending on the way... Pol politics is life, right? Ideology is a system, you know, that we, that we kind of, you know, believe in and, and live our principles to it. And part of mine includes security culture and keeping my community safe, right? Whether it's, you know, my, my, you know, front facing persona where, you know, I have to go to work every day and that kind of thing. Um, they go hand in hand with each other. I don't, I don't, it's, it's also just like a form of compartmentalization, Right. Like I have spent, you know, a few years trying to figure out that balance for myself because I don't want to go overboard with, you know, uh, super strict security. And then I've completely alienated myself from from my online community as well. I don't want to. So I just chose to separate the two, whereas my politics are, you know, kind of limited to a, um, you know, an anonymous kind of name but it's not an anonymous person. You know what I mean? To myself, like they're not different people. Well, that's good to hear because you talk about, you know, your online presence and during COVID, mm -hmm. 
sometimes that's all we had. You know, I felt like my entire identity was through my online interactions with people, whether that be public facing or um, not. So I guess like, yeah, I, as we open up, perhaps that's not such a big concern, but um, I guess people will still want to just find ways to connect and, and live vicariously through each other's lives or whatever it is that we get through that social media mm-hmm. on top of movement building and, you know, drawing people to you and, and to, to your work. Um, but it's nice to hear that you have found balance because um, yeah, you know, I, I worry about, removing some of those elements and and what that will be like and will I lose connections but I think I'm understanding better that there's just even small steps that I can take that's within my personal comfort zone that will at least keep my immediate um contacts safer um, absolutely and without that's kind the of whole going goal. going dark right because we can't be completely underground either that, no, that itself can't. is a I'm, red flag and and anybody who's doing that um, already understands the risks, I would hope. Anybody who's, you know, chosen to go completely underground in their activism and organizing understands the implications of that to their personal lives, right? So, you know, unless you're planning on doing that, there's no reason to completely go underground, right? So, because that is a red flag, as, you, as you've mentioned, right? So you talked about keeping things separate, not siloed. Um, you use a word I can't possibly... Compart... <laughs> mentalization don't make me do it so (laughs) you talked about how you can do it as an individual yeah but we can do that as organizations too even 100 percent basic grassroots of us rabble rousers yeah that is actually in my opinion uh, a little bit more important right so um you know the uh, I guess maybe I should say the uh, the status quo uh, is not really introduced uh, in in my opinion introduced so much in the individuals, but they are introduced uh, they're interested in the organization power, right? So I think compartmentalization is arguably way more important for organizations. <laughs> so um, and how do we do that? Well, that would depend on the org. I I don't mean to say that like flippantly. I I would no, just you know there's fair. there's very much, you know, like you you touched on on NDP asking for for to vet social media like that that is like I mean that's one way to do it. But <laughs> like, so what I don't I'm I'm a little confused about it. what are they not looking for what are they looking but I mean a way for an org to do that is to have different arms of the org i guess you have your front facing and then you just have your internal you know kind of ags affinity groups that understand the need that some things need to be a little bit less public facing and they can compartmentalize by using only secure internal comms and not and compartmentalization also includes just because we're in the same org doesn't mean that we have all of the same relevant information to what we're doing you can separate that kind of thing right for example, if somebody is doing something a little bit spicy as part of your org, or there's something that's planned that might be deemed illegal in the eyes of the law, then there's no reason for everybody in that org to be part of the planning if they're not doing, if they're not partaking or have really no kind of relevancy to that action. 
Um, so compartmentalization would be, okay, let's break off into a subgroup and keep this between us. That's not supposed to be alienating. That is supposed to be security, right? So it's almost limiting culpability, right? You're not saying you're not in this new chat because you, we don't trust you. It's because you don't need to be, and we're, we're unnecessarily exposing you, um, when you don't need to be. And then we are all exposed if we keep it on this channel. Absolutely. Things like that, right? It's just understanding. That's delicate, right? Like how do you not make people feel like they're left out, right? There needs to be that conversation as to, you know, why it's important, why there's a locked channel, what is, you know, generally what is happening there as opposed to just not being allowed in it. And these are internal, important internal organization conversations that I think have a broader social implication of why do we feel the, the need to know everything about every part of everything and partake of it like like is that an ego thing is that um you know a some of us thing? are type a personalities right we gotta we, micromanage we sure. everything <laughs> I do. and i have that personality right like i do but again it's a learned behavior right once i started to understand that you know what like you you literally are not involved in the planning of this you don't i'm speaking for myself um and like you don't actually need to know any of this sure you want to know because we all love tea right (laughs) right like but like if i happen to get picked up for something unrelated or if police use my devices and i wasn't even in that then then what would have been the point beyond my own curiosity and need to know right again these are internal org conversations that need to happen how is it structured right like does everybody you know can we all agree on this that this is about community care so again it's different for every org i would say like i've definitely been in spaces where security has been a concern but not a forefront and then i've been in many many more spaces where there is zero well i guess we do some things inherently like keeping certain things separate and you know um but not in a very productive way um now that i'm looking back at it and i think i've not done a good job in in terms of also explaining you know the levels of secrecy that might exist in organizing and whatnot. So definitely I feel like, you know, when we have meetings on comms, when we have meetings on events, like there's, there's there needs to be a security uh, discussion from the onset and, and folks kind of responsible for that, you know, to keep it up to date and to onboard people to an extent. And I think that might be missed in quite a few circles. So I'm hoping people are listening to this and kind of understanding it's time to take a look at our practices, a second look. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good main takeaway. Uh, and it's not like this is so. So nowadays in the age of the Internet, uh, there's way more information available to all of us and data um, on, you know, on historical precedent, too. So even before the advent of the computer and the Internet, security was a problem in all you know, left political activism circles, whether it's through infiltration or doxing or guilty by association, right? So it's it's not like this has come out of a vacuum. Like this is this is has always been there, but has been a lot more of a very overt problem now with the advent of of the internet. So um, I guess like. The main, like, again, I just want to stress that this should not be alienating. And there are ways to implement this right off the ground, like like you're saying, comms team on an org. 
Like, does the comms team actually understand the communication tools that they're using? Do they understand how that data is used, how exposed it is? And it's also the comms team's job, in my opinion, to now bring this knowledge and information forth to the rest of the org. And then you can all deal with it in turn, like, you know, as an org, like, let's make decisions on this based on community care, um, as opposed to um, effort and um, other considerations. The, the main consideration should be community care. Because, yeah, like we are, like you said, we're going out there and we're definitely challenging the state. We're challenging capital. And if you haven't met resistance yet, you likely will, you know, um, as you we haven't go met on resistance in time. Yet, maybe you're not actually against the status quo. Maybe you're actually on the side of the status quo. You got to step up your game a little bit if you haven't even had a community liaison officer call Absolutely. you. Absolutely. <laughs> Right? Absolutely. It's That's the like, marker of progress. Well, you know, yeah, same with when you get docs or, or, you know, folks, your enemies are extremely upset with you. It is almost a badge of honor to know that you are at least on the right path. Totally. Like if like in some ways, right, like we don't want to go too far overboard for the sake of, you know, martyrism, which is also a problem in white spaces very much so um, but that's another subject right but um we have like um i'm not white for anybody who's listening so um the uh there's like uh, the whole thing of like um shit what was my point there beyond dunking on white people and martyrs um <laughs> that's always fun though no um. <laughs> um obviously we don't want that increase um, surveillance and action on the boot of the state. We don't want that to happen. But the fact of the matter is, if you slightly challenge the, the narrative at all, you will get that pushback. So, um, you know, like no, like all protests are palatable if if the systems of power agree with you. <laughs> like essentially, right? So any protest that the systems of power don't agree with is not okay to the state. <laughs> And if we're not disrupting, I mean, what are we doing? Yes. I mean, yes. we talked earlier, there are there are points to doing that, but I mean. Yes. Yes. If we're not disrupting, what are we doing? If we're not challenging, uh, then what are we protesting? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's a protest because it's a protest against, you know, the powers that be, whatever they may be. So it's like, despite what you saw in Ottawa, folks, you cannot just simply go running into the streets, you know, setting up hot tubs and live streaming your actions. For us, there will certainly be repercussions. So yeah, just ask any land defender, you know, any land defender, you know, the, the disproportionate response, um, you know, and that was enraging for a lot of uh, people on the left, and especially our indigenous comrades uh, that have to see the kid gloves. Again, I'm not, this isn't in support of saying we needed the police to crack down or we wanted the police to crack down. We're just pointing out the gross hypocrisy in police and state response to the right wing versus anything deemed left. Um, again, it's not saying, oh, I wish the police had cracked down on Ottawa because I don't. Um, I'm just saying there's a gross hypocrisy there. So, yeah, that that would explain the police response is that most of them were on the side of them and realized that they weren't actually disrupting capital. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a signal that all of a sudden the police have condoned, um, you know, disruption or blockades of any sort. Um, no, 
if anything, it's an indictment on the state and the need for more left protesting. <laughs> so, because we all know what that would have been like had uh, that protest been left leaning of any kind. We, we know what the response would have been. Oh, totally. And, and to that point, uh, we didn't touch on it and we, we totally should. So I'd be remiss not to, in, in our spaces, particularly when we take to the streets, you know, there's a disproportionate threat to our, our, our black and our indigenous and, and our other racialized comrades. Mm-hmm. Any advice on how organizers, maybe a, just a couple tips that we can, it's not just enough to recognize that that threat is um, increased uh, for racialized comrades, but what can we do to mitigate that? I know, um, you know, I've been to actions where a white shield, you know, if it's logistically possible uh, to have white people on the outside of the unit that you've created. Um, but any other? Um, I kind of want to touch on that a little bit, if that's OK, the whole idea of the white shield. Um, is, that, is that OK? It's a little bit of a tangent. But again, this goes hand in hand with community care. Um, you know, uh, as somebody who's, uh, you know, considered a, a, a model minority by, you know, society or whatever, somebody who's clearly not white, but, you know, um, like, so with the whole like white bodies to the front and what have you, you can also run into an issue of, of, of agency, uh, you know, um, and again, the whole white savior thing um without uh any sort of kind of uh community mindfulness of what we're actually doing there or what we're trying to accomplish there right so so you know it's not that i i disagree with um you know people with less to lose like in terms of you know uh historical oppression to the front bearing the brunt of uh of what have of, of police violence um, it goes beyond that. Uh, it goes, that mentality needs to be carried forth in day-to-day lives, not just as a, at an active protest that's being busted up by the cops. Uh, that includes, um, you know, using your kind of privilege to educate as opposed to gotcha moments, where white people love their gotcha moments, where um, as opposed to doing actual education and organization. Um, and I would say that's not even a priority. The priority should be prioritizing, understanding what you're doing on that day of that protest, what it's about, and asking how you can contribute, asking the organizers how you can contribute best, as opposed to, I'm going to do this because I, I think this is the best idea to do. Just forming a white, white vanguard at the front for all the photos, exactly. right? I, exactly, that kind of right? imagery, you're, yeah. Yeah. So check in with the organizers. At the end of the day, you know, if we believe in non-hierarchical organization and activism, then that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't people to check in with. You know, <laughs> this is their this is the day that they're putting on for for the community and helping organize and keep people safe. Let's check in with the organizers and see what they want. If I am at uh, a, a demo and an action that's run by all white people on behalf of, you know, another um, group in society, 
then first of all, I'm going to be really sus in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so you like, should be. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would always check in with organizers and see what they want in terms of what they can do uh, to help marginalize and oppressed voices, um, you know, on the day of and moving forward. Again, it's checking in, right? That's not to say this is kind of a sticky subject and I don't know if we'll if this should go in or not, I don't know, but just as a, as a personal, just because somebody is, uh, you know, just if you as a white person, just because somebody is saying to do something at a protest, uh, that's not white. doesn't mean that they're automatic. You should automatically, again, check in with organizers, right? You have a problem of, of, of mixed communication at protests when they get spicy. And again, always defer to organizers when possible. And so that's a note for organizers too, like be visible. Yeah. So the onus is on the organizers at that point, in my opinion, um, if they're not communicating, uh, if they're not taking any security precautions, if they haven't like spent the time to make sure that they're ready to educate before leading up to and during and afterwards, then, you know, it's just not doing a real good job of community care in the first place. So again, that doesn't mean that all organizers are on the ball. It just means that it should be the job of organizers, in my opinion, to be on the ball. And that's progress, too. That's that's I mean, spreading this amongst our community, because, I mean, you've taught me so much. So there's so much more that I will now do as an organizer that I would not have done before. And so now I take the onus on me, obviously, through via this podcast, we will help people hear some of the things that they need to do. But in my spaces, you know, I commit to. Uh, having those discussions um, and coming to decisions to make the community safer. So I, I, you know, I hope other folks do the same in their circles and we're just going to wrap up here, but I want to give you the last word, obviously. Is there anything I did not ask you or something that you would like to share with people listening, tangent or no tangent? There there might be. I, I don't have anything off the top of my head that jumps out. I just, I just want to really stress that, again, it can be really daunting to understand and to come to a lot of these uh, realizations. And um, again, this stuff this kind of practice and attitude and kind of ways of approaching uh, activism again doesn't come out of a vacuum it's a learned thing and you you kind of nailed it there with uh it's progress not perfection um as with anything else in activizing and activism and in your in our daily lives like we should really really try to limit the amount of of ego that we bring into spaces um so if you happen to run an you know, want to join an org or have joined an org or a movement, um, you know, and a lot of what the trend goes against like your daily, just, just take a moment before reacting and just like, let yourself sit with it and be like, okay, why are they asking this? Or just straight up ask and be open to other people's security and feelings of safety, you know, that you don't have are valid. Right. So from experience. So I would just say if somebody is asking for more security or requesting that you take more precautions, it's not personal against you. <laughs> There's obviously a reason that they're asking for it and it's important. And who doesn't want to learn new stuff? You know, we're we're, you know, progress, not perfection. Right. So I like that. Thank you so much for joining us, Noodle. Um, 
Again, I've learned so much. I hope the listeners have learned a lot. Can I add one more tangent? I'm so sorry. Yes, so sorry. yes, please do. It's just like one one more thing. I'm just reflecting on some of the things that I talked about in this conversation. I, I think I didn't cover some of the details that I wanted to, and then I went on too long with about other stuff, but that's okay. That's natural. It's supposed to be a natural conversation, right? So, and it was, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and um, I just, I, I think I just want to touch again on the fact that um, you know, uh, I talked a little bit about, you know, I didn't talk specifically much about different apps and direct things and, you know, tools that, that we can use, which, you know, there's a lot of information out there and I'd be happy to, you know, maybe answer some in text if there are any afterwards or anything and provide some kind of resources and that kind of thing. But I guess the main thing is, is that all of these tools and tech and apps and security practices are only as good as the human aspect of it, right? So there's no point in me using all of the tools, like let's say secure app messaging apps, secure email, secure documents, if the personal secure, if, if like the personal practice of security is not practiced in your day-to-day life, as in taking screenshots of these secure chats and sending them to people who aren't in them, in those groups, uh, you know, sending screenshots with people's names visible or a screenshot of an email uh, that is supposed to be secure. Like all those security breaches that we see um, in activist circles, a lot of them are not actual like technology infiltration. It's, It's human infiltration or bad security practice. So again, all the tools that we use, just similar to any other kind of, of, of activity, whether it's driving or, um, you know, making your art or playing an instrument. It's only as good as the person who is trying to operate it. So keeping in mind that apps themselves aren't good enough, um, we just need to keep security in mind as a community going forward in the way that we interact in terms of political organizing. That's all, I guess. Yeah, that's yeah, you can use Signal, but still be a complete security breach. Signal is not the answer to everything. Well, like you said, like nothing's 100% and that, that human factor. I guess my thought is the best way to mitigate that is the conversations that you talked about earlier, you know, making it understood that this is community care and that we are built on on trust. And so this is why we need you to behave this way and not breach the agreements that we've made, not take screenshots and, and practice your security for us as a collective. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. I think that's, that's kind of my biggest takeaway, takeaway is there's, yeah, yeah there's a lot Changing of conversations. Yeah. 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 Cause we yeah. could go on the nitty gritty of like how to use signal. There's some good literature out there. Like, you know, it's, it's called signal fails is one of them that comes up to, that comes to mind. And, you know, like different apps and, and different ways of compartmentalization and that kind of stuff. But again, that technical knowledge, I, like I'm not an expert on tech or, or anything really. I'm just, you know, somebody who's been doing this a while and, you know, has learned a lot through it and grown as a person too. So uh, all these like kind of concepts has made me grow as a person in terms of the way I interact with my community and view things. And that's the main takeaway. It's just like, what are we doing here? And how are we approaching activism in the first place? Is it individualistic or is it gen- is it genuinely community-based? That was perfect, Noodle. Thank you.
Okay, I, I could have picked Noodle's brain there for hours. Uh, obviously, there's plenty of more tools out there. Noodle just did not have time to share them all. I will post up some links after the episode airs on our Twitter account. The biggest takeaway from all that, I think, though, is that we do what we can to keep each other safe out there as we disrupt capitalism and smash the status quo. Be sure to listen in next Thursday as we keep learning from each other on all the diverse ways that we reach our communities, fight back against oppressive forces, and start to realize our collective power. Like in all things that we do, there is a team behind Blueprints of Disruption. I want to give a big thank you to our producers, Santiago, Hello Quintero, and Jay Woodruff. Our show is also made possible by the support of our listeners. So if you appreciate our content and would like to become a patron, please visit us at www.patreon backslash BP of disruption. Um, a heartfelt thank you to our first two patrons um, who had enough faith to subscribe even before our launch. So thank you, Ed Cunningham and Roger Moran for your support. So if you know of any work that should be amplified or want to provide feedback of our show, please reach out to us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. Blueprints of Disruption is a project of New Left Media, an independent employee-owned company.